Good morning, Restoration. I hope that you feel the presence of God right now in this uh, period of time of global health pandemic and our racial national pandemic. Restoration is looking towards long-term solutions to properly engage with racial reconciliation and righteousness. This message today is something that has the ability to bridge that chasm. So I gotta tell you, church, I was confused. As I uh, talked to you last week, we had some beautiful, intimate uh, celebrations and driveway uh, blessings given to our seniors last week. Uh, the mentors' beautiful words, empowered by the Holy Spirit, were a beautiful expression of our church's community and of our values. Uh, and as with everything that takes, uh, everything important, it took a lot of discussion, prayer, and preparation. And that was where I ran into a bit of trouble. You see, during the preparation piece, I was looking for uh, some biblical examples of a mentor passing on words to a younger generation. Uh, and so, of course, the first thing that came to mind was Isaac's blessing. Uh, some of you may remember the story, uh, but Isaac, he's grown old, and his eyes are going dim. And so he tells his oldest son, Esau, that it's time for the blessing from father to firstborn. And so Esau is sent out to go on a hunt, and when he returns back with his kill, Isaac will give him a blessing on him and his future. But while Esau is away, Jacob, the younger son, with the help of Rebekah, his mother, um, kill a, a lamb, they prepare it, and Jacob enters the tent with the lamb meat and the lamb wool on his arms and receives the blessing in Esau's stead. So when Esau returns, Jacob, or excuse me, Isaac, um, tells Esau that Jacob has received the blessing, that it now belongs to Jacob. And unsurprisingly, Esau is furious. So that was the part that confused me. If Jacob knew that this was for Esau, why risk the conflict between himself and his brother uh, over just some words? Now, to be fair, uh, there was a high symbolic value to this blessing. Uh, the blessing was a, a compilation of the father's hopes and prayers for the son, and it was a, a sort of a passing on of legacy. So it had some real symbolic value. But that truth only really complicates the issue because Jacob should have known how valuable this would have been to Esau. He would have known that by receiving the blessing, he's firing the first shot in perhaps an unending and bitter war between himself and his brother. Why risk it for just six sentences? Why is Rebecca willing to aid him in that lie that's going to drive a wedge between her two sons? Um, why, uh, why do these six sentences, although sacred, um, why are they worth it? They're just words, right? And maybe the most confusing, why when Esau returns, 
does Isaac not just correct the supposed error? Why not just give the blessing again? Instead, he gives a whole other blessing, significantly less positive, and really just the opposite of all the good things given to Jacob. Why is this family tearing itself apart for six sentences? Well, church, I think the reason is that every person in the story knew a truth that we've really forgotten. And it was a truth that as I was preparing for Senior Blessing, I started to learn or relearn and remember and was really convicted of that I need to act in faith on this more. So I want to bring you along uh, on my mental pathways, on my preparation, and kind of let you vicariously relearn this lesson with me. So the first place I thought to start was I got to find some other examples. So I, I thought to other mentor-pupil relationships in the Bible. Uh, I thought of Moses and Joshua, and Naomi and Ruth, and Elijah and Elisha. Um, but none of them have a whole letter written between the mentor and the pupil. So Paul and Timothy was the choice, and I checked out the two letters to Timothy. And I wasn't really sure what I was going to find, but I was very certain what I was looking for. I, I wanted to find something that was similar to the blessing, something that at least in content matched up with what Jacob and Esau fought over. Um, and so I, I started at the end of both letters. I figured that that would be the logical place to look. And I didn't find anything. <laughs> the uh, first letter had uh, some orders given to Timothy, some, some instructions to follow, and they were talking about what Timothy ought to do, but they weren't really aspirational prayers. And the second letter had barely anything at all, almost just kind of stopped. Um, so I was a little confused, but I figured, okay, I'll check the beginnings. Maybe Paul started with the blessing, you know, something positive to start it off. Um, and again, I couldn't find anything that was similar to a formalized blessing, but there was something that did catch my eye. Um, there was a subject or a section header called Thanksgiving, and in the Thanksgiving, there were some prayers for... Um, it was a personal prayer, really, to Timothy and talking about Timothy and the good things that he was um, gifted with. So that seemed kind of similar. Um, but the other part that caught my eye with it was I was pretty certain I'd seen that before. I mean, hadn't, weren't there some other letters of Paul's that started with a thanksgiving? Yeah, there, there definitely are. Um, as I was looking through my Bible, I was flipping through and then eventually Googling because I was coming up with more than I knew what to do with. Um, I found out that of Paul's 13 letters, only two of them don't start with a thanksgiving. And that it's part of his format, actually. It's how he wrote letters. And it's based on the Hellenistic style of writing that started letters with a prayer. Um, and also I learned that even though I hadn't seen it in Timothy, or it was in Timothy, I just hadn't noticed it, uh, there's a final greeting as well. And all but Ephesians, the final greeting consists of Paul praying for the recipient that Jesus and grace 
would go with them into the future. So these thanksgivings seemed close. Uh, they were always um, a personal message from Paul to the recipient, and they were from his position as a church leader and from his position as a direct mentor to those folks, whether they were an individual person or a whole church. Uh, and most importantly to my search, they were deeply rooted in those prayers for the future and the good things he saw in them. So I thought, bingo, this is it. Uh, it's, it's not the exact same. Uh, the formatting is a little different, but the situation and the sentiment are almost exactly on. But I still hadn't really figured out a why. Like, yeah, that's a nice way to start and end a letter, I suppose. But um, why go through all the trouble? Why of the 26 beginnings and endings does Paul only miss three opportunities to send uh, off his recipient with a prayer of blessing? And that was really when it hit me. Blessings are almost always prayers. Anything in the Bible that talks about prayer can and probably should be applied to blessings as well. I'd been looking in all the wrong places. I needed to be looking for prayer things. And one of the first things that came to mind almost immediately was Mark 11, 23. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. When I heard that in the past, I always kind of thought about it in the abstract. I mean, like, Jesus is telling me about throwing off figurative mountains, right? Internal ones with faith and prayer. He's not literally saying that I could walk up to a mountain and say, go into the sea and it's going to, like, move. Um, but then I reread the passage, and let me tell you, it's an eye-opener. The story happens twice in the Gospels, or we read of it twice directly in this format in the Gospels, in Mark and Matthew. And in both cases, Jesus is walking and he sees a fig tree and he causes it to shrivel up and die with just his words, nothing more. And it's because of this, like his words acting, that the disciples ask, how in the world he did that? And in response, he gives Mark eleven twenty three. 23. Um, so in context, it seems almost certain that this is meant to be taken very, very li literally. The implication is that Jesus is not talking metaphorically at all when he says, say it will happen, it will be done for them. That's pretty intimidating. Like, when in your life or my life have I ever seen something like that happen? Like, that doesn't happen on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Like, could my words really shape reality? And then I remembered. Jesus rebuked the sea. Peter told the lame man to walk. Elijah called fire from heaven. Deborah commanded the armies of Israel. And, Jesus, or, and even I, in my own life, with my own eyes, have seen bones and ligaments healed at just the mention of Jesus' name. Of course. Of course our words 
are absolutely powerful, supernaturally beyond our comprehension powerful, miracle-level powerful, throw mountains into oceans powerful. And right now, I'm sure that some of you are nodding your heads along at home because you know it too. Everyone has experienced the power of words, even if it's in a little less dramatic sense, but nonetheless, no, no less potent. Um, the power for encouragement and condescending words uh, affects all of our lives. We all know that a compliment at the right time can shift an entire life onto a path of a positive path, a, a new change, a new chapter. And we all know that a, a, an aside insult or a word of doubt can trap someone in a cage of negativity and self-loathing. Mentorship and bullying, teaching and deceiving, respect and contempt, love and hate, all start and end with our words. Psalms 18.21, the tongue, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. When I heard that, I found myself asking and thinking to myself, do I take the same care that I take in a crowded parking lot as I do with my words? I wouldn't risk someone's life that I don't even know, just some random pedestrian in front of a store. And yet, I way too often risk the internal lives of my loved ones off of just casual put-downs and judgments. I think this is something that all of us really, really need to repent of. This is not something that we can just let lie. But before you decide to duct tape your mouth closed because you think, you know, no words are better than literal death, I did have a really encouraging epiphany. You see, we don't have to speak alone. Peter, Elijah, Deborah, and even Jesus spoke with the power and authority of God flowing through their words. The Holy Spirit flows and, and moves through every believer. And we can use, we can access its power. When I speak in alignment with the heart and truth of God, the Holy Spirit echoes in my words, strengthening them, refining them, turning them into a tool that can heal the broken, peel back lives, and build believers. With the Holy Spirit, we can do far greater things than our sinful flesh could ever do on its own. The destructive things I say don't hold a candle to a single life-giving phrase empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, I have my answer. I'm no longer confused. The power of words is the reason Jacob and Esau fought so violently over this, uh, this blessing. It's the reason why Paul never, hardly ever, loses an opportunity to pass on a prayer of blessing and hope to his spiritual brothers and sisters. It's why James devotes almost half a chapter to not speaking thoughtlessly and to taming the tongue. And it's why I'm speaking to you today. Because that truth that was so obvious 
to Jacob and Esau and Rebekah and Isaac has somehow been lost to us. We don't use the full potential and power of our words. And let me tell you, church, this world right now needs it more than ever. It needs the power to heal a frayed relationship that has been frayed by arguments. It needs the power to encourage a friend on the edge of giving up. It needs the power to observe a spiritual strength in a maturing teen. It needs the power to peel back and refute a lie that tells a daughter that she can't lead. It needs the power to support our brothers and sisters who have been ground down by systematic racism. And it needs the power, it needs the power to, uh, to drive back a demon attacking a husband's heart and head. And it needs the power to call down the miraculous on a bedridden grandmother. Church, the world needs the power of our words. Please don't lose an opportunity to use them. That is why the celebration for our seniors last Saturday was centered on a blessing prayer. We didn't want to miss an opportunity. The power of the mentor's words echoed with the Holy Spirit and turned what could have been a happy and yet ultimately forgettable moment into something that was sacred and supernatural. And today we want to mimic that. We want to replicate it. So in a few moments, you will see a video uh, of the senior backyard and driveway celebrations. Each senior selected a spiritual mentor in their life to harness the power, the supernatural power of words to pray a blessing prayer over them. The blessing prayers include encouragements, earnest hopes for their future, and declarations, as well as a moment that's specifically designed for you at home to join in the prayer. Please, please help us make this a sacred moment. The supernatural is not bound by space and time. Your prayers at home right now are just as powerful and valuable as if you had been there last week. So please, please join with us and pray a blessing over our seniors.